Talk Recorded live. On June the 14th, 2015, from Coolidge, Arizona, uh, we welcome all of you who are on board and listening, and hopefully uh, uh, the ideas that we share with you can be evaluated for you to make your own final decisions from. And that's one of the objectives of teaching, is not to tell you what to think, but hopefully to teach how to think so that you can come to your own conclusions for which you will stand before God on. You won't stand before God on what I thought, but on what you think and how that thinking led you to doing the right thing. It's never thinking unless what it is you're thinking causes a response in what you do. Now remember that. A lot of people spend a lot of time thinking. And thinking becomes an excuse of truth. I hope you caught that. Nothing is considered to be thinking unless it engenders a response. It's just garbage. So you're spending a lot of time doing stuff that doesn't require any response from you. It's just a worthwhile, uh, a worthless uh, expenditure of your time. So we need to think, and we need to think with the idea that what I'm thinking about is going to require an action And that's why folks get involved with everything else in the world but thinking about things that are going to make a difference. And the difference is expressed in what you do about it. Any questions? Okay. Everybody went to sleep here on that one. Now, we're looking at Acts 2.38. I love this verse. Because with this verse, you don't need the book of John. You don't need the gospel of John with this verse. You know why? Who can offer a reason? Why we can take the gospel of John and trash it. The whole gospel. This verse trashes the gospel of John. I want you to think about it. Now remember. Well, it almost is. Except you all don't know where I'm going. I'm playing a mental game with you here. You got to remember that. Greg is right on, but. Do we have any other response? Why we can take the book of John out of our Bible and... What is the theme of the book of John? No. No, I mean, the the reason for it in chapter 20. Why all of what John wrote is so that you might do what? Yeah. Remember John 20 and 21, I think it is that all of these things I've written 
are so that you can have a basis for what? Belief. Well, isn't it interesting that Peter says you can be forgiven of your sins without believing? Because, see, he doesn't mention it. He assumes it, doesn't he? Well, that's right. That's right. But you see, it's never said. And what what I and that's the point that I want to make is that our son we assume then because of what these people did and how they responded to what they were hearing was that they believed even though the word is never used in this immediate context. Our assumptions must be in harmony with the author's assumption. He is assuming that you're smart enough to know that if you're going to be convicted in your heart, you're going to be a believer with, I mean, convicted because of what you hear, that you are a believer in what it is you've heard. Does he have to tell us that? He doesn't have to tell us that. They're, that's what the Gospel of John is for, is to give us a basis for what Peter is building on here, assuming with the assumption that these people are all in harmony with who Jesus is, and they are the ones responding to him, and therefore they say when he, they are told that Jesus is the supreme authority and the anointed one of God, that they were pricked in their heart and they cried out, what are we going to do? Well, now, wouldn't you assume that they were believers? Otherwise, they wouldn't care. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't make any difference, would it? Now, am I too loud or too soft? I can't hear a thing. The believers that you're talking about are the believers that are ready to incite a response, right? They're, they're, they're your opening comments. They're thinking. Scripture also talks about believers who their, you know, their belief is worthless. Oh, yeah, because they don't do anything. They don't do, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they shudder. But isn't it interesting that what shall we do? He didn't tell them to believe because they already did. So he is assuming, Dr. Luke in writing this, is assuming that the audience knows what he's talking about. They're already believers or what? They would not have asked the question. Or they would have asked some foolish question. Or walked out. So we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. So when he talks about repentance here, we know he's saying, you know, he didn't bombast them with, you know, um, start stop clipping your toenails. You have, you know, you can't do that anymore. Um, well, I'm being ridiculous, but I mean, some. Some things that people, the churches ask people to repent of is a, ma- a method of control. 
not to bring in alignment their thinking with thinking that causes a, the proper response. See how I'm tying all that together with what I, how I started today? Getting in step. Getting in step. Getting in step. It's a positive move. Now, there are times when people do things that they need to manifest some elements of despair, of, of the shamefulness of their sin, sackcloth and ashes. But here, that isn't the issue. Here, start thinking right. Because if you're thinking right, then you will do what you ought to do. And the reason people don't do what they ought to do is because they're not thinking right. I think it's interesting that the Greek term talked about in here is, is literally changing your mind or your purpose of your mind. Yeah, that's right. It has to do with... It's not with you know, changing something on the outside. It's changing your mind. Changing your thinking. And I, I think that's very appropriate here. Um, and uh, I think that when you realize that it, it isn't just change for change's sake, it's changing in this context. It's changing to where you are in agreement with what it is that God has done, right? Because what has he done? He has made him, this one whom you crucified, this one... He has made both Lord and Christ. He has made both the supreme authority and the, and the anointed one. That's important. We go through life and that really hasn't become the predominant way of our life. And Christians ought to have that as the predominant influence and the predominant thing that issues forth out of their mouth that Jesus is the supreme authority and he is the anointed one of God and we need to have that as the consumption of our life. That, that's what makes the difference. So we're looking at an assumption here, first of all, that he is including belief. It is obvious. He did not say it. There are other assumptions in this verse. Um, let's go on. <clears throat> See, verse, uh, where are we here? Um, I, I want to talk to you about what the word baptized means. And um, let, let's look that up in the original as well. And uh, let's, let's, let's see what the Calvinist work has. on the definition. Well, they don't give us much help, do they? Um, it means to immerse, to make overwhelmed, literally fully wet. Is what? Sink. Sink? Yes. Like sinking ship. So sinking ship. The problem with that word is that it never comes back. Yes, I that, so that's, and the word submerge isn't right either. 
of ceremonial ablution, especially technically of the ordinance of Christian baptism. Um, and it's translated baptize, baptist, wash. I mean, the same word, the different roots of the same word. But the, if you go back and look at the etymology of the word, it goes beyond uh, that. And it really just very simply, oh, here you've got a word, uh, a new definition. That's what it came from. All right. It came from the word to overwhelm, to cover holy with a fluid, to moisten one a part of one's person or to stain as with a dye. And they've translated that word in its root as the word dip, and that's the word that really mostly corresponds to the etymology of the word is to dip. Now, let's think about the word for a while because, folks, a lot of confusion is wraps around this word. <clears throat> and I want to make a point, though I don't know that I can fully defend it. Um, in this word, in the word baptized or be baptized, if you look at the... Um, parsing of that word, we had it originally up here, um, is a key to where I want to go. The new Lincoln Continental car has what they are referring to, it hasn't come out yet, has what they are referred to a dipped chrome around the bottom of the body. They dip the, they dip the whole body without its tires and everything. The body of the car is dipped in a chrome, um, you know, whatever, some kind of a, a vat, a solution. And it's the solution which corresponds to this. And uh, now, for it to be dipped... When can you say that that Lincoln has been dipped? When it's brought back up. It's not dipped. What is it before it comes back up? It's either in the process of being dipped or it is what we call submerged, and that's why I don't like that word, because submerged and dip are opposites. Submerged means put down permanently, and the word baptized means to be put down temporarily until something takes place. So notice the parsing on this word. It is uh, third. Uh, every every one of you uh, should be baptized. Be baptized. It's in the arrowist. What does that mean? Now, don't remember you can't answer that question until you know what the what the mood of that verb is. What's the mood of that verbs of that word? Imperative, which means then that the verb has no what no time of action. 
for the word arrowist, which is a is the uh, for for it to have a time action, it has to be in the indicative mood. Now you all know this stuff, but I, I want to make a point of it here that we're speaking in 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 agreement, you know, in repentance, in changing, in agreement with what the word is and how the word was spoken. Arrowist deals only with the type of action when it's in the imperative mood. Only with the type of action. Arrowist has to do with a particular one-time event. That's what arrowist is in uh, the imperative mood. It has only the kind of action. Every verb has kind of action or time of action. That's, first of all, determined by its mood. And when it's in the imperative mood, then it only ha- any verb only has kind of action. So baptism here is a dipping that takes place how? Once and in the past, um, it's something that you look on as in the past, although there's no time factor, but it always lends itself toward that. It's a one-time act. A punctiliar act is the precise meaning of the word arrowist. A particular meaning. Now, it's in the, what, what uh, voice is it? All right, it's something that you have to have done to you. Now look at the difference of the word repentance. We'll come back to this, but just the next line up. Um, the very first word. Now look at the parsing on that. It's plural. And remember, baptism is in what is in singular. This also is in the arrowist. What is its mood? Imperative. Imperative. Therefore, what is there about arrowist? uh, Just a punctiliar action. Does dipping correspond to that? And notice the voice. Different than on baptism, because this is something that the individual has to do himself. Now, we go back and look at baptism again, and we find out that baptism is in the passive voice. It means that every person is responsible to have somebody else do this to them, and it's punctiliar. Everybody is responsible Everybody is responsible for their own repentance, and actually they're responsible for having this done to them, but they have to have somebody do it because you can't do it on your own. Now, I'm not going to go to where some of you, well, what about if somebody's way out in the desert and he gets he way, way, way out in the desert and he gets slapped in the tail with a sturgeon tail? I mean, gets slapped in the face with a sturgeon tail. Well, first of all, there's no water out there. There wouldn't be any sturgeon there. But they're assuming something here that we can't agree with. 
But what, and, and all of a sudden, being slapped in the face with a sturgeon tail, he says, I believe, I repent, and I want to, I, I, I'm baptized. What's the problem? There's nobody to do it. You have to have a witness. And I don't want to go there because, because if that person really got slapped by a sturgeon tail out there and that made him a believer, then the Gospel of John comes into play where he hasn't come to a belief in the right process. We have to come to a belief by the process of the Gospel of John. Now, once we've come there, then there can be shocks in life that may want us to put it together real quick. Now, what God does in cases like that where there is no party to do what you need, you know needs to be done, I don't have any, I don't have any answer to that. What God will do will be according to what you can do with whatever situation you're in. And I, I don't know how God deals with situations like that, but that's so rare, and I'm not sure it's ever really happened because normally a person comes to a belief and a repentance and the willingness to be immersed into Christ. Uh, he has, he's has somebody there to do that. That's the normal way. What God does outside of the norm, I don't want anybody to be encouraged to be outside of the norm. Um, I'm outside of the norm enough. But I don't want to encourage you to be outside the norm and think you're going to get special favors by God because you're outside the norm. Let's, let's not go there. That doesn't answer the question. So when the word, the word dip means fluid. You know, literally it's a fluid thing. We saw that in the definition. So we, we make an assumption here that all of these people who heard the word baptized, what was their background in the Word? All of these Jews, what had they all been baptized before in? By, the, by John's baptism. And what did he baptize in? Water. Measurable, identifiable water. That's the only definition that they had ever heard of the use of. Now, I realize that fire, and nobody wants to go there because that was the fire of judgment um, and of the Holy Spirit, and, you know, we don't understand that was through the, uh, the baptism of the Apostle Spirit. We've already discussed that. But the only thing that the Jews as a whole knew about was the baptism of John. How did John baptize? So when Peter used a word that those people all knew about, and they knew that John's baptism was a baptism in what? Water. Then what would they assume by this word? If we don't assume the same thing that they would have assumed, why do we put an ad bact a, a belief to it? See, it's another assumption that is evidenced by the context. And to be baptized, even though water is not used, is the only thing that those people had any reference to. And the fact that it's in the passive voice, and he's giving it as an order. You see, it's, it's got the balance of the imperative. You can't, you can't demand God to do something. That's usurping 
his sovereignty by your sovereignty, and that doesn't work. To be baptized in it is an imperative. It means that you have to have this done to you, and it is something that you can do, or he would not have commanded it and put it in the imperative mood. You see that? Any questions? David? Yes. So the people that uh, say baptism is a works are... You're not doing... You can't be saved by works. So if you're baptized, you're not doing the work somebody else is. Oh, that's exactly accurate. Dan, baptism is the only place in the salvation process where there is no work. Belief takes the effort of knowing all of the data of the Gospel of John. You, you folks, that's work. Now, that's work. That'll keep you awake at night if you take it serious. Repentance is something you do. Why don't those who say works I'm going, to, I'm going to say more about that. You know, why don't they eliminate belief? Because Jesus said the only works that you do is the work of belief in John 5 or 6. I think it's 6. Work is, uh, belief is the only work. That is where the work is, is in believing. Why don't they discount belief? Folks, that's where the work is, is in coming to a belief, in having the collection of information that is adequate for you to come to a decision on. That's work. They say that's uh, not work because they come to their belief without the work. Oh, that's right, Dan. You've got it. They come to their belief uh, without working. So then then why don't they... That's why I started with this, really, Dan, with the Gospel of John argument up front. Why don't they kick it out? It's you, they believe that belief is unilateral, that when it's right for you to believe, God will implant it. You can come to a belief without the word. See, that becomes a manipulative, manageable tool, and that's where people like to be. Yeah. People like to be controlled, and people like to be managed, and that belief fits in to the natural uh, Uh, desire of most people. They like to be controlled and manipulated. And there's nothing, if if there's no work involved, then I don't have to do anything. And therefore, I don't have any responsibility for making sure that I'm in alignment with God. Right. Did did you all hear what Dan said? Therefore, you're not accountable either. That's correct. Yeah. Tell a story when he was in the army. He went into a restaurant in Greece, and he was back in the back. Had a friend that he was in the army with was working in the kitchen, and that's what they were doing with the plates from the cafe. They were putting them down into the water. Baptismo, he would say, "Go in dirty, come out clean." Oh, okay. Oh, and you know what? I want to. Don't let me forget. I want to deal with that. Um, I, I wanted to uh, 
if we can have belief without works, then, uh, of course, uh, study and thinking we should all cast aside. Well, if you get to go that far, then, of course, the sinner's prayer becomes a work. Then. Then, yeah, then the sinner's prayer becomes a work. Um, it's, a, it's, like, it's like any lie. It's a vicious circle. Mm -hmm. It contradicts itself. Well, I don't see right off the pan. Oh. <clears throat> and one of their texts that they use is John 6:29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him uh, whom he has sent. But you see what that verse doesn't tell us, folks? You have to assume that, the again, the writers had an idea of what John was talking about. He isn't saying that the work of God is that you are going to believe. He simply says in the English here, is the simple statement that this is the work of God, that you believe. That's, that's the work, is that you believe. How? This verse doesn't tell us how. How comes from the Gospel of John in its entirety? That's why John begins his premise with that verse, and then he ends up. Notice what he says. We've already read this a couple times here recently, but look at it again. Um, but these are, verse 31, he is ending then his epistle. These have been written so that you may believe. See, doesn't that answer what we just read back in John? It doesn't tell us the how. But God has enabled us to believe upon the evidence that John is going to provide us with from John 6, 29 on. And then he concludes his, the latter part of that uh, book in um, uh, chapter 23. 31, that these have been written. They are adequate for you to believe. If, if chapter 6 and verse 29 stood alone, why would you need any of the rest of the book? See, it doesn't answer the how, and so the rest of the book answers the how. We are always, uh, we are always taking a verse and forgetting that not every verse tells us all of the things about that verse we need, but whatever that verse tells us is a part of the whole thing that we need. It's just like when people say believe. Sometimes that's all they tell them because that's what they needed. They always, the writers, the Bible writers, always tell us the next thing beyond where we are. If they were already believers, why would Peter tell them to believe? If they were not believers, what would Peter have said to them? Then believe. That may have been all that he said. Because why would he go any further until they became believers? And so when some of the cases in the verses uh, of the New Testament where, he is, where they are told to believe, it's because that's not where they were. They needed to come to that point. And once they came there, they would be set up for salvation. But we've got to remember that every no verse tells us all that we need to know about any subject. But what it does say is critical to the whole picture. You're getting me worn out this morning. So the answer to your question at the beginning of class is 
we won't, don't need the book of John because of Acts 30, because of Acts 2:38 because Peter was speaking to believers. He was speaking to believers, and also I'm I was talking about what? what oh, is that a question? Okay, I can't see it. Oh, does somebody have a question? I, w- I was going to make a statement. Uh, some people believe that God chooses us to believe, not that we choose to believe Him. Uh, that's true. So, uh, again, then why, if God is making the choice of the general audience, then why do we have a New Testament? And, and what what's the problem here is is they they miss the pronouns of Ephesians chapter one, you know where and where Jesus says I choose you. Who's the you? Without going there, who's the you? The, the apostles, the disciples who were to become the apostles. That is never said to anybody else. We become the chosen one when we believe and repent. Are, and are united with Christ in water baptism, rise to walk in the newness of life, having been dipped, then we, are the, we become a part of the chosen. The church is chosen as a whole. Individually, we have to choose. We are sovereign individuals. God chose the disciples. They were foreordained to be disciples. We better take time. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Am I, am I going all over the board this morning? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not going to... Um, what was that? Why should it be different today? <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, Mike. I love that. That was Dan. Oh, that was Dan. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, we are question-driven. And uh, I don't know about you, but I love that. But, you know, my days are numbered, so if you get tired of it, just outweigh me and you can have it some other way. <laughs> All right, and that's okay, too. I, I, want, you to lo- I want you to look here. Look at uh, just a couple of verses, folks. This, this whole passage is so rich. And we're, I'm, I'm just going to cruise it real quick because i got another point to make before we dismiss. And, folks, I really need to quit on time. I need time to make a break between this and the General Assembly. And they're stomping at the door. they got horses and mules out here lined up in the park and the, all waiting to stampede their way in. What are the ropes for? What? What are the ropes for? The rope? Oh, the ro- <laughs> to keep folks out. <laughs> okay. Now... <clears throat> First of all, he tell, and, and just, just go with me, folks. You can fill in the details if you're interested. Is Paul writing to the saints in verse 1? And he gives them an introduction in verse 2. Verse 3, um, he, has, uh, he introduces the us. You see that us? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he has chosen us. You see that us in verse 4? And notice verse 5. He has predestined us uh, to the praise of his glory on, uh, on us. In verse 7, 
In Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 8, He lavished on us. And verse 9, He made known to us. And all of the, He made known the mystery of His will. That's explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You all know that. And with a, with a view, so they had unique information that the essence that you and I don't have. Uh, but let's go on. Uh, in Him we also... Verse 11, we, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, to the end that we who, who were, oh, now we have a little distinction here, who were the first to hope in Christ. So now he's, dis, he's distinguishing the we from anybody else. Now verse 13, the rest of it you can figure out on your own, folks. There's no secrets here. In him, what's the next word? You, you also. Oh, now that changes the whole picture. Everything else is referring to those whom Paul is identified with as the apostles. They were the ones who meet all those criteria, not you and me. And then he goes on to explain what we have as individual after. Now notice the very first thing, Dan, after listening. Now, you did not have your spirits immersed with the Spirit, but you now, after listening to the message, the gospel of your salvation, and believing that message, you were sealed with Him in the Holy Spirit of promise. And don't get hung up on any of those things now. Now, there's some translation issues there, but let's, let's stay with our point. The point is that those who say we are chosen, and they, this is one, look at the books on Calvinism. This is their key verse, and it all collapses with verse 13. It makes a, you can't have a first person plural and second person plural. Uh, um, you, we, first person plural, you all, second person plural. Those are two separate groups. And then uh, he, he goes on then and he emphasizes that you thing. That's because it's all based in what happened in verses 1 to 12. Otherwise, we couldn't make a choice. And you're not an apostle. David, then this explains that John uh, 6.29, too, this is the work of God, providing us the information that we might believe. Oh, that's right. Good. Um, that good point, Mike. What was that, Dan? If we don't have a choice in the matter, and if we don't have a free will to exercise, then we are nothing more than puppets. Exactly. Yeah. And the, uh, Dan made puppets, though. Uh, what? I'm good with puppets. You're good with puppets. Uh, Dan, Dan and Nolan have uh, agreed here that there's great advantages to being a, a, a puppet. No responsibility. No responsibility. You can only do what strings are pulled, and we'll pull the strings. I guess that's one reason why we don't have as many as some folks is that we don't believe in putting strings on people. We believe in people being coming without coercion to what is right and doing so because that's what they have chosen to do. Amen. And people don't like that. 
People like to be told what to think. They like to be told what to do. And they don't want any responsibility. There's another problem with that whole concept of no responsibility, and that is that if we're not individually responsible for ourselves, then who is it that's responsible when we sin? Oh, well, that was inherent. You don't have a choice in that either. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but that's, those are good points. Folks, our time is way gone again. And I didn't get to what I wanted to do in conclusion today. So we're going to have to come back to Acts 2.38 next week because I've got to deal with uh, uh, a few more things about this baptism thing. And uh, I want to discuss why the word epi is used there instead of into or en in uh, verse 38. And uh, that's an important concept, I believe. And I need to deal with the word uh, Doria and what that means and uh, what the promise is. So we need to deal with the things that are kind of the crux of, um, of where we, I think we ought to be to be in harmony with what God has done. We're, we're at the crux of what God has done in the reading of Acts this, this is the dream of God fulfilled. And so you can expect that people would try to change it and alter it. The restoration movement individually is trying to come back and bring our thinking and our actions into harmony with what's real. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a good day. We thank you uh, for the strength that each one has to be here and to share. We thank you for the great questions and comments. Father, we, we just come to love the truth and therefore you more every week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now you expect me to go do something else.